This is the Serious Sita Podcast, Episode 14, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Welcome back to Sirius Sita. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and want to learn more about the life model that he left for us to follow. Now, in today's episode, we are going to delve deeper into the intricacies and the finer points and the finer details of the workings of Medina society. Now, this is when Prophet Muhammad has already arrived in Mecca. He, I'm sorry, not Mecca, in Medina, and he's starting to get settled and he's starting to build a society. But now he has to deal with the inner politics of Medina. He has to deal with so many different forces. He has to deal with trying to bring the Aus and the Khazraj, who were two warring tribes, trying to bring them together into one brotherhood. Then he also has to try to bring the the Muhajirun from Mecca and the Ansars, who were not necessarily at war, but they were from two different cultures and two different cities. He had to now bring them into one brotherhood as well. And within this group, within the the uh, the people of Medina, there were some people who were Muslim outwardly, but inside they they held resentment and hatred towards Prophet Muhammad. So he had to had to also now deal with hypocrites. And then on top of that, he also had three Jewish tribes who also lived in Medina who didn't really seem to want him there. And then on top of all that, he also had the Quraysh sitting in Mecca doing all of their little little conspiracies and everything that they could do to try to upset what he was trying to build in Medina. So we're going to look at all the different players and feel and not feels and not look at all the different players and all the different aspects of the inner workings of Medina society and how Prophet Muhammad wasallam, with the help of Allah was able was able to bring all of these things together. Now, we're going to get right into the show very quickly, but just want to let you know that from this episode of Sirius Sita going forward, we will always have an outro now. So, after the main part of the show is over, stay tuned. There will be a short outro. shouldn't be more than four or five minutes. An outro means just a little bit of uh, ending information, some final uh, information I can give you before we close off the show. So, when I say Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi at the end of the basic lesson, don't leave just yet. Just stay tuned for a few final details, inshallah. And one more thing before we get into the show. Many people constantly ask me about how they, what they can do to learn Arabic. And there are lots of good programs out there. But I encourage you that if you're trying to learn conversational Arabic, not Arabic from the Quran or not Arabic to, to study you know, Islamic scholarship or something like that, if you just want to learn conversational, colloquial, modern Arabic, my suggestion would be to go through Pimsleur. I tried it before. It was very good. I think you should do the same thing. Make it very easy for you. Just go to sita.us slash Arabic. That is sita.us. That's the main website for Sirius Sita. S-E-E-R-A-H dot U-S slash Arabic. Forward you on to Pimsleur. Check it out there. See what we have going on. All right, now we're going to go ahead and let's get into Sirius Sita episode 14. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible 
for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah and I am your Lord so worship me so the Prophet peace and blessing be upon him made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor they were one ummah and they were a magnificent brotherhood Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alamin wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad Rabbi shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri When we left off in the last episode of Surya Sira we were discussing how the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and Abu Bakr arrived in Medina after their hijrah their pilgrimage or the immigration from Mecca to Medina not the pilgrimage the immigration and how when they arrived they began they were warmly greeted by the muhajirun who had come before them and the ansar those who were living in medina already uh from the tribes of the aus and the khazraj warmly welcomed him and then he began to set about in, in the establishment of the first masajid first the masjid of quba which was just outside of medina and then in the prophet's masjid itself which became known as masjidun nabi which is there to this day though of course greatly expanded today we're going to talk a little bit more about how the prophet began to further establish the society in medina and the different things he had to do in order to do that and also some of the obstacles and some of the groundwork of the future conflicts begin to arise in this chapter inshallah the prophet's first and foremost mission was to try to establish a stable society so he came to medina really as a refuge along with his muhajirun the companions who had taken shahada in mecca they had come to medina basically as refugees they were on the run and in their coming to medina they had also brought along with them all the problems and all the all the issues that they had had with in mecca namely conflict and animosity with the quraysh for now the quraysh would bring that animosity upon the whole people of medina essentially if you harbor our enemy this is the thinking of the quraysh that is if you how if you harbor our enemy that makes you just as guilty as president bush said when he famously went to uh went to war in in uh afghanistan after the 9/11 attacks how he fam- how he famously said you either with us or or against us there's no sitting on the fence and when it became clear at least according to the accepted story of of that event when it became clear that those attacks were perpetrated by terrorists george bush then went on to say that we're going after those who did this and the countries that harbored them and so the quraysh were thinking the same thing we're going after the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and his companions and those that harbor them meaning that medina was in their target and let this be clear the quraysh were the most noble tribe in in arabian society at that time they were the most noble they were the most wealthy they were also the most influential and while they did not really have a standing army they didn't really need all that to command a certain a certain amount of influence so prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam had a tremendous a tremendous job ahead of him, ahead of him trying to establish a society in the face of such a threat 
in the face of a threat barely 500 kilometers away that wanted to destroy him and wipe him out. But the first thing he had to do, start from the groundwork, and the basis of any society is are the civilians itself. And he began to work on establishing a brotherhood between those refugee Muslims, the Muhajidun, who had fled Mecca to Medina along with him, and those who had already had an established presence and foothold in Medina, the Ansars, the members of the Aus and the Khazraj, who had accepted Islam and who were the inhabitants of Medina before the Prophet came. The Prophet Muhammad began to establish a brotherhood between these two parties. And so he paired each muhajir, every male muhajirun, every male person who had come over and made the hijrah from Mecca to Medina, he paired each of them with a member of the Ansars, with one of the residents of Medina, kind of like a brotherhood. And initially, in the early stages of this brotherhood, this was almost everything like a real brotherhood. So when one of them died, the other would inherit from them. When they, were, they were like really almost like brothers, like family members in a way. It wasn't until the Battle of Badr, which we'll get to soon, inshallah, that this sort of changed. We'll begin the Battle of Badr in the next episode, inshallah. But it wasn't until then that... Allah sent down the commandment saying that this form of brotherhood where one inherited from the other, even though they weren't genetically related, they weren't blood related, could no longer stand. And Allah put things back to the way they should be where family inherits from family. But one of the most ex- most excellent examples of this brotherhood is that between is that, that between Abdurrahman Abdurrahman ibn Auf and his brother from the Ansars. When they came together as brothers, the Ansar said to Abdurrahman ibn Auf, and Abdurrahman ibn Auf, we mentioned him uh, probably in episode two. No, probably episode five. Four or five in the early chapters of Syria Sita before the Hijrah, we mentioned him. Abdurrahman ibn Auf was a wealthy merchant from Mecca. He accepted Islam early. He is one of those who were brought into Islam by Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was also a merchant as well. And when he accepted Islam, he began to spread it among the merchant class of Mecca at the time. And so that's how many of the companions came into Islam, including Uthman ibn Affan, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, Talha, uh, Talha ibn Ubaidullah, uh, Zubair ibn Awam, and of course, Abdurrahman ibn, ibn Auf. So Abdurrahman ibn Auf came into Islam as a wealthy merchant, but when he made the hijrah, the, immigra- the, the migration from Mecca to Medina, he left pretty much everything behind, and now he was fairly destitute. And his ansawed brother asked him, or in his love and in his eagerness to show his brotherhood and to display his brotherhood, the ansawed had two wives. And he told Abdurrahman ibn Auf, if I, I have two wives, choose whichever one you want, whichever one entices you more, whichever one you pleases you more, I will divorce her and you can marry her. Have my property, you can take, it is yours. But Abdurrahman ibn Alf, he thanked him and he praised him and he asked Allah to bless him. But he declined and he says simply, show me the market. Show me the market and Abdurrahman ibn Alf, eventually over the next couple of months and years, 
he eventually was able to earn enough trade on his own by establishing his own establishing his own business and getting right back into what he was into before he was able to build himself up enough wealth where he was able to make a dowry or mahara and offer to one of the Ansar women to marry her and her dowry was a lump of gold so Abdurrahman ibn Auf was able to establish himself despite his destitution despite having left so much wealth and so much of his belongings and property back in Mecca in addition to also pairing the Ansars and the Muhajirun together one major benefit of establishing this brotherhood in Me- in Mecca was that it brought the Aus and the Khazraj together because now the Aus and the Khazraj were not the Aus and the Khazraj were now the Ansars they were brought together as one cohesive group as the Ansars yes they were slightly slightly different or slightly separated from the Muhajirun even though they all fought together and they all all worked together and they all defended Medina Medina together and as you'll see in later chapters but for now the Aus and the Khazraj who had been feuding for generations from before now they're brought together in one brotherhood so this was a significant and very important factor to help establish the society of Medina not just bringing the muhajirun and the ansars together but also bringing the residents of medina who had been fighting against each other for so many years before now bringing them together as one brotherhood and then prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam also established something kind of like a constitution or a contract the arabic word for it is sahifa the arabic word for it is sahifa it's like a contract between the prophet and all of the residents of medina including the jewish tribes who maintain there this contract or constitution however you want to call it it set boundaries in relationships between the the different groups in medina and how they would relate to each other if you think about it the us constitution people you know extol the us constitution as a great literary masterpiece and truly it is but more than a literary masterpiece it is also a legislative masterpiece that's really the beauty in the US constitution and that it sets up the government of the United States yet makes sure or at least as best as it can because it's not quite perfect it tries its very best to separate the powers of the government so that no one person has too much power so as powerful as the president is he doesn't have full control over the money in fact he has no control over the money the money is kept within the hands of the US Congress and no matter how much money the US Congress has or how powerful the president is they don't have full control over the laws because the supreme court can either uphold or strike down laws that they create but even with all of these what as they call them checks and balances in the US constitution it's not perfect because quite frankly the president of the United States is extremely powerful while he may not have a whole bunch of money or while he may not have really control of the money according to according to the constitution he has control of the military and the FBI and the CIA and the IRS and everything else you could think of practically all that answers to the president and so what the constitution strove to prevent has kind of already happened the over the years 
the powers of the federal of, of the federal government, namely the president, has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. The Sahifa, this constitution, while it wasn't really a written constitution, it's more like a verbal agreement. This was also meant to put checks and balances on the power structure of Medina to allow the Jews the opportunity to practice their own way of life and not force anything upon them, yet to still maintain and recognize the authority of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And we'll get into more of the details of the Sahifa, the Constitution, in, in a few minutes. But right now, let's look at some of the different groups within Medina that this Sahifa, this Constitution, was, was attempting to regulate. That's what the Sahifa really was. It was trying to keep the different groups within Medina working in a way that was beneficial to all, yet not so overburdening that people lost their individuality, that there was no independence, that anyone was forced to do something that they didn't really want to do. Now, of course, there are considered three major groups in Medina at the time. First of all, the Muslims. Those that includes both the Muhajirun and the Ansars, those from those who were originally from Mecca and from Medina. Medina, all of them were one group as the Muslims. Then we also had those Arabs or those residents of Medina who had not accepted Islam. There were still some pagans in Medina, though most of Medina had accepted Islam. There were still some holdouts who did not. But over the years they, they all eventually accepted Islam and eventually all there were no more pagans left in Medina after a while. Everyone either left or accepted Islam. And within five years of the Prophet's arrival, there was no more idolatry in Medina. Now of those people who were pagan Arabs, some of them were sincere in their conversion and some of them were not. Those who were not sincere, we still group them along with the Muslims, but they're another subcategory of the Muslims. Because they outwardly, they did take their shahada and they gave allegiance to Prophet Muhammad, but inside, they did not believe. These are people called munafiqun, the hypocrites. And within those pagans, there were some who, were, who had some animosity towards the Muslims. These are the actual outward, inward pagans, the real, true Arabs who did not accept Islam, not the, uh, not the fakers, not the munafiqun who pretended to be Muslim, but the true Arabs who did accept Islam, so the true the, the Arabs who were true pagans and did not accept Islam, from among them, most of them were peaceful towards the Muslims, and as I mentioned, eventually they all later on accepted Islam. And some of them were not so peaceful. Some of them had animosity and hatred in their hearts. And while they may have accepted Islam, for many of them, that hatred did not disappear. And it would manifest itself later on as hypocrisy. And when you think about it, and it's actually kind of amazing that one man was able to navigate the complexities of this society, this very intricate and complicated network of families and tribes and different faiths and different uh, goals and different ulterior motives, how Prophet Muhammad Wasallam was able to navigate all these different things and still come out with a perfect society at the end, a perfect society in Islam. But we also must realize that while we are looking at this from a historical point of view, we must always recognize that this was still this is still Islam, and the Prophet of Allah was sent by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and he was endowed with certain gifts. And this nothing he did was outside of the plan of Allah. Everything he did was according according to the will of Allah, and Allah 
chose the right man for the right mission. As Allah says in his book, in Surah Al-Jum'ah, verse 2, قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فِي كِتَابِهِ بَعْدَ عُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَّ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ هُوَ الَّذِي بَعْثَ فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ يَتْلُوْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةَ وَإِنْ كَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ لَفِي ضُلَالٍ مُبِينٍ Translation is, It is he, that is Allah, who has sent to the unlettered ones, or the Gentiles, a messenger from among themselves, one who speaks to them his verses, Allah's verses, that is, and purifies their lives, and imparts to them the, the book and the laws and wisdom, although before that they were in utmost error. In this verse, Allah shows or tells us how he sent Prophet Muhammad وسلم, with laws and wisdom and guidance to help those people who before this were completely misguided. Now, as I mentioned already, the Muslims consisted of basically three categories. There were the Muhajirun, there were the Ansars, and now there were also the hypocrites. Those who were Muslim by name, but did not really believe. And so, of these three, the Munafikun, of course, were the ones who caused most of the trouble. And their leader was a man named Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. And we spoke about him a little bit in the previous episode of Syria Sira and how he was nearly about to be crowned as king of Medina. And then suddenly the prophet comes and just snatches everything away. Oh, that's how he thought of it, at least. Nothing was snatched away from him because he was not meant to get it in the first place. It was the quarter of Allah, the decree of Allah for things to go as it did. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was not meant to have that role, that position. It was meant for Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and everything went according to Allah's plan. So he really lost nothing because he was not meant to get it at all. Now he spoke about the pagans who lived in Medina, and he spoke about the Muslims who lived in Medina, both who's, both those Muslims who came from Mecca and those who were living there already. Now let's talk about the Jewish tribes that lived in Medina, Al-Yahud. There were three primary tribes that lived in Medina. There were Banu Kainuka, Banu Nadir, and Banu Koredo. For the most part, these three tribes did not really trust the Muslims. They were not really happy with them arriving. They did not really like this idea, this new monotheistic faith that tend, that claimed to be a superior faith and claimed to be the actual, the actual true message of Musa salam and the true message of Yusuf salam. They did not like this idea at all. They did not like these Muslims who claimed to be worshiping the same God as the Jews, but now they had a new prophet and this prophet wasn't even Jewish. I mean, how unthinkable could that be? Here they were coming with a prophet and he had the nerve not to be Jewish. And there were perhaps several reasons for the Jewish tribes to dislike and mistrust the Muslims and Prophet Muhammad wasallam. For one, we already, as we just mentioned, the religious differences. The fact that this, these Muslims, these Arabs were coming around saying that they were monotheistic and that they no longer worshipped worship a bunch of stone idols because that was a that was a point of 
pride for the Jews and even some of the Christians who live in that area that these these prehistoric and and Neanderthal and these caveman like uh, Arabs still worshiping idols and things they make with their hands, and we worship a monotheistic God. We worship a God who is above the seven heavens. We worship one single God. We we are monotheists, and you guys are still worshiping stone carvings and wooden carvings and stuff. There's a point of pride for many of Ahlul Kitab, the people of the book. And now here were these Arabs saying, well, we reject those idols just like you do. But we also reject your claim that you have a true faith because your faith and your books and your your scripture has been tampered with and has been altered and it is not the original statements of Musa alayhi salam and Jesus alayhi salam. It is not the true statements anymore. Instead, we have this new book here. It's called the Quran. And it is the real truth and it supersedes and it's better than anything that you have. And in fact, because we are actually following the truth and we are following the last prophet of Allah, in reality, we are actually superior to you. So that air of superiority, the air of, of uh, one-upsmanship that the Jews may have had for a long time before when the Arabs were, were worshiping idols and kind of and being very primitive in their, in their livelihood, now the Jews don't have that advantage anymore. The Arabs are no longer living according to you know, tribal customs. They were no longer just doing whatever they felt like doing. They couldn't just eat dead meat. They couldn't just eat any animal that crossed their path. They couldn't just do anything they wanted. They had rules. They had discipline. They had certain regulations they had to live by. They had to bathe certain days. They had they could only eat certain things. They had to slaughter their meat in a certain way. They could only speak a certain way. They had to, had to pray a certain number of times. So much structure, so much rigidity, so much discipline. And people who, who before this were completely wild, they pretty much did whatever they wanted. The only thing that that kept them, that curtailed them, was their own imagination. They used to bur- bury their daughters alive. They used to go to war over the simplest things. And now, not only were they not going to war, they were becoming unified. You can imagine the concern and the suspicion brewing in the minds of the Jews as they saw this happening. But there are other reasons for the Jewish tribes of Medina to look upon the Muslims with suspicion and hostility. Before this, before the arrival of Islam, the Jews had no problem charging interest, what we know as, as riba, to the Arabs of Medina. And this is how they did things. They would, the Jews were, were very wealthy. I mean, they, they managed to control their wealth and, and build up good trade networks and buy huge and managed to acquire huge tracts of land, and they were very wealthy. The Arabs, on the other hand, the Aus and the Khazraj specifically, they were always fighting with each other. You know, they, they could never really do much of anything. They could never really unite and bring any benefit to themselves because they're always too busy fighting. And the Jewish tribes of Medina, they would actually take advantage of this. Certain tribes would back certain, certain Jewish tribes would back certain Arabs tribes and play them off against each other make them fight, keep them divided. So long as they were divided, they were never a threat to the Jews because the Arabs most certainly outnumbered the Jewish tribes. But so long as they were fighting and divided and continuously killing each other off, then there's nothing to worry about. In addition to this, because they were never able to really establish their society, as we mentioned before, before the coming of Prophet Muhammad, 
Yathrib, the, the old name of Medina, was just, it was mostly swampland. It was just almost unused land. It's like a small village. Nothing like nothing like, like Mecca or Ta'if, any of the major metropolitan areas in the Arabian Peninsula at the time. It was backwaters, really. Barely holding itself together. And so, the Jews managed to maintain this advantageous position by pitting one group against the other, but also by keeping them destitute and broke and poor. They did that because as these two, as these two tribes and different clans would continuously, continuously fight and continuously run themselves into debt, they would have to borrow something from the Jews because the Jews were wealthy. They weren't fighting. They weren't fighting. They were unified. Their economy was going pretty strong. And so when things went south for the Arabs of Medina, as it often would because they were always always fighting each other, they would have to go to one of their Jewish backers and borrow something from them. And when they did that, the Jews would charge them interest, riba. And when that happened, almost always the Arabs would default. And they would put up as mortgage or as collateral collateral against their against their debt, they would put up their houses or their land or their animals. Sometimes even their children or their slaves. And when this happened, when they went into default, when they couldn't pay the Jews back in time, the Jews would seize their property. And the reason why the Arabs would often go into default because there was riba, there was riba, interest attached to the original debt. So it was it would go over and ab- and above what they originally owed, and when they defaulted, the Jews would seize it, and the Arabs would get poorer, and the Jews would get richer. But now here comes this man from Mecca, who claims to be a prophet, saying that riba interest is not permissible. Now the Jews knew this already. It was impermissible in their own book. It's written clearly in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that interest is not permissible. But like many other things, they found ways to weasel in and out of it. And they changed the words of Allah. And they changed the book to satisfy themselves. And they changed it to mean that you cannot charge riba to other Jews, but to the Gentiles, the Arabs and those non-Jews, oh, you can charge interest to them. And that's what they did. This is just one example of how when Allah says that people change, the book, change his scripture or change his books with their hands. This is one example of how they did that. When he also says how well, there's actually Prophet Muhammad who said this. How people used to, how people of the book, or the people of the book used to worship their priests and their monks and rabbis because they obeyed things. The monks and rabbis would make certain things permissible, which were not permissible, and the people would follow them. They would make certain things haram, which were permissible, and the people would follow them. This is one example. They found a way to make interest permissible, and the people followed them. This is just a word of caution to those Muslims who try to make riba, interest, permissible today with all sorts of excuses. Trying to make it uh, permissible, you should be very careful about that. Be very careful about trying to make something that is not permissible, permissible, and not go down the same path as the Jews did. But in this case now, going back to the story of the Prophet when he came to Mecca, and he brought down, or Allah sent down the law stating that interest, interest, riba, was not permissible and was forbidden. It was like going to war with Allah and his messenger. 
this really hurt the Jews. This upset them. Even more reason for them not to really like this guy. He was taking away a big chunk, a big portion of their income. And to illustrate just how much the Jews didn't really like the Muslims, there's a story of one Jewish rabbi who came to meet Prophet Muhammad when he first came to Medina, in the early days of his arrival to Medina. The Jewish rabbi's name was Abdullah ibn Salam. He was a learned rabbi, learned in his books, learned in, in the Jewish scholarship. And he came to Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and after speaking with him, he became convinced that Prophet Muhammad wasallam was speaking the truth and that he was the messenger of Allah. And this is true for those who are sincere in their worship of Allah and not sincere in following custom and following tradition. Those who are sincere in worshiping Allah, they will recognize that Prophet Muhammad is the Prophet of Allah, was the Prophet of Allah, and that Islam is the truth. But when people are blinded by custom and tradition and arrogance, they won't see it. But anyway, this rabbi, Abdullah ibn Salam, he noticed it. But he was also well-known within his own community. He was a Jewish rabbi, but he was well-known within his own community as being uh, a well-learned man, someone who was very generous, someone who was very kind. And his people, the Jewish people, they loved him. But he knew his people very well. And he warned Prophet Muhammad after he, after he took his shahada, he warned, he warned him, he gave, he gave him a way to test the Jews. He told him, call them to your presence and ask them about me. And then let's see what happens. And so Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu did that, did just that. He invited some Jews over, and he asked them about this rabbi, this Abdullah ibn Salam. And they praised him. They said, oh, he's, a, he's such a great guy, salt of the earth kind of person. Love him, wonderful person, wonderful person, wonderful individual, amazing guy. He's really a stand-up guy. He's generous. Oh, he is his mother's eye. He is an apple of his mother's eye. He is so wonderful. Well, such a great guy. And Abdullah ibn Salam, after hearing them praise him, he was hiding in the Prophet's house. He stepped out and then he said, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. I bear witness that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. What do you think happened next? The Jews then turned everything around. Said, oh, this wicked person, he's so evil. He doesn't, he, what kind of fool is he? He's such a horrible person. May your mother be bereft of you. You are horrible. Puh, pooing. And all sorts of things to him. So, this is just an indication of the animosity that existed, though it was under the surface at this point in time. But it was there. The animosity, uh, animosity that existed between the Jews of Medina and the arrival of Prophet and the Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims. Now, with all of these problems going along, we must also remember that the Prophet also had one other big problem: the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. In addition to having these three Jewish tribes who didn't really like him, in addition to having this this new bond of brotherhood between the Ansars and the Muhajirun, and then between the Aus and the Khazraj, in addition to having to try to hold these different groups together, in addition to fake Muslims, Muslims who pretended to be Muslim and who was constantly undermining him, in addition to all that, he still had this city with this 
cube structure 500 kilometers away full of full of a bunch of people who were related to him and who wanted to kill him he still had to worry about the Quraysh the Quraysh were definitely the most powerful and most noble tribe in, in Arabia and they used that to their advantage in the early days while they didn't while they did not yet have the muscle to wage a full-out onslaught against Medina they were able to do many things to hurt and cripple the Muslim, the growing Muslim society. They signed or they made treaties and contracts with different tribes and different groups in Arabia to boycott Medina. And so this also further put more problems on the Muslims of Medina because now there are several tribes or several several uh, tribes and caravans amongst the Arabs who will no longer trade with Medina because of their agreements with the Quraysh. And so that hurt Medina a lot, not having having this boycott. Prophet Muhammad did not just sit idly by. Now, he, of course, also went about trying to make treaties and agreements with certain tribes, even if, even those who were not Muslim. Most of them weren't Muslim. But he was coming from a, a, a much lower advantage point than the Quraysh. The Quraysh already had the established power. Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims, they were considered the upstarts. And so people would be more inclined to support the Quraysh because they had all the power. All the money was with them. All the nobility and honor was with them. Here this guy is, Prophet Muhammad, he got chased out of his own city. He goes to this small backwards thing called Yathrib that no one hardly ever heard of and need a map to find it. He's trying to do something here. I mean, come on. I mean, who do you expect them to support? They, they Most of them supported the Quraysh. But there were a few tribes who did support the Muslims, or at least most of them did not necessarily support the Muslims. But at the very least, they made a pledge to remain neutral. While they may not actually get in, get involved in the scuffle and fight on the Prophet's side, at the very least, they would not join against them. And in the early days, those were the best promises that Prophet Muhammad could get. Later on, things would change. Things do change later on. But in the early days, a treaty of neutrality was almost as good as a treaty of friendship. Now let's talk a little bit more about this sahifa, this constitution that Prophet Muhammad set up between the different groups in Medina. Certainly the most important thing to maintaining a stable society while creating a stable society for Prophet Muhammad was to make sure his own people, his own followers, were on the same bus, that everybody was on was going in the same direction. And so he focused a lot on maintaining that brotherhood within the Muslims, which is why he paired up the Ansars with the Muhajirun and why he he tried to erase the divisions between the Aus and the Khazraj by making them all into one group called Ansars, the helpers. So that was very important. And also, if you look at some of the hadith from this period, you can see that many of them have an emphasis on brotherhood. Let's look at some of them. For one, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم المسلم للمسلم كالبنياني يحشر بعده بعدا A Muslim is to another Muslim like, a, like the beams of a structure. They support each other. And here's another one. قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم 
Al-Muslimu man salima al-Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadihi wal muhajiru manahallahu anhu. A Muslim is one whom other Muslims are safe from both their hands and their tongue, and a muhajir is one who leaves what Allah has forbidden. And of course, one of the most popular ones that pretty much every Muslim knows, Qala Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحب لنفسي. None of you are believers until you want for your brothers what you want for yourself. And so we can see how important brotherhood was for Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Trying to when I say brotherhood, that means brotherhood and sisterhood. Really, the unity among the Muslims that was very very important, and he tried to his best to and to keep that intact and to make sure that that stood together. And to make sure that that held together. That was the most important part of it all. And then there were the Jews, Al-Yahud. He wanted to create an agreement where the parties could live in, in peace with each other and some sort of mutual cooperation without necessarily infringing on each other's rights. And while still maintaining the authority and the leadership of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. So he made agreement with these three Jewish tribes and as part of the Sahif, as part of this constitution that would allow for the freedom of religion for both groups and allow for a certain level of autonomy yet still recognize that Prophet Muhammad was a leader of Medina. So of course, among the terms of the Sahifa was that everyone could practice their own faith. The Jews could continue practicing Judaism and the Muslims would practice Islam and no one would be forced to go into the faith of the others. And for the Jews, this is perfect for them. They didn't want the Arabs becoming Jewish anyway and they most certainly were not ready to leave their religion. And so they were fine with that. Another clause to this agreement was that each party, both the Jews and the Muslims, they would be, they would be responsible for their own expenses. Each party will be responsible for maintaining their own economy, which is very interesting. And so the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu did not make it mandatory for the Jews to pay any of their of the Muslims' taxes or to so if case the Arabs or the Muslims ran up a huge war debt, now the Jews gotta come in and fulfill it. He didn't make that mandatory upon them or anything like that. He didn't seize any of their property saying this is now government property and we're all going to share it. This is now community property. We're going to take your orchards and we're going to share this now. He didn't do anything like that. He said they can keep you keep your wealth and we'll keep our wealth. And what you incur as expenses and profits is yours. And what we incur as expenses and profits is ours. However, there were some things that they had to share and everyone had to share the responsibility for the defense of the city of Medina. That was that was important. There was there was no society if Medina was not safe. And so he got the agreement from the Jews that they would help to defend Medina in case they were attacked, which he obviously knew was inevitable at some point. The Quraysh weren't going to just let this sit down. He also made sure that in case one group Maybe not the whole entire city was attacked, but if case one group was attacked, for instance, for instance, if the Jews were attacked by some enemy, the Muslims would rush to support them. And if the Muslims were attacked by some enemy, the Jews would, would rush to support them. So not only were both groups obligated to defend 
the city of Medina in and of itself, they're also obligated to defend each other in case they were individually attacked. Finally, the most important part of it all was that the Jews would recognize that Prophet Muhammad was the lawmaker. He was the leader. He was the authority in Medina. And his decision would be the final one. His decision would be the ultimate arbiter. He was the ultimate arbiter. And if there were any disagreements, they had to bring it to him for his judgment. This established his, uh, his ability and his authority. And the Jews, of course, also agreed to this. How reluctant they were or how willingly they accepted it, only Allah really knows. But we will see some of the evidence of how willing they were to accept it in later chapters, inshallah. And so now that the inner workings of the society of Medina were all put in place, and now the Prophet Muhammad has had been able to create some sort of brotherhood amongst the Muslims and a working agreement with the Jews, now came the aspect of dealing with the external threats. That once again, 800-pound gorilla in the room, the Quraysh, sitting just 500 kilometers away, waiting for their time waiting for their chance. But Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu did not necessarily wait. Knowing that they were fully at war and knowing, accepting the fact that, that the Quraysh was an enemy, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu began a series of raids against the Quraysh caravans. Now remember, they were at war with the Quraysh. They were at a state of warfare for 10 years, 13 years actually. The Quraysh had been heavily involved in the process of persecuting and torturing and hurting the Muslims for many years before that. So there was no doubt that they were, they, were out of, they were in a state of war. Just because the Muslims left the city did not mean that things ended or that everything was okay now. Even after they ended, the, the uh, Quraysh also made agreements and boycott agreements with other tribes and still tried to strangle and suffocate the new city of Medina. And so Prophet Muhammad Sassam, while they were, while the Quraysh were exacting economic warfare against the Muslims, he also made sure to exact his own form of economic warfare against the Quraysh. And he began to order raids against the different Quraysh caravans. Remember, that was the lifeblood of Mecca, trade. The lifeblood of the Quraysh was trade, being able to be middlemen between the people living in Syria and the people living in Yemen being that middleman, trading goods from one to the other, one to the other. And with Medina sitting right in the middle of that, right in the middle of that caravan of trade network, the Prophet and the Muslims were in a perfect position to attack the different caravans and raid the caravans of Quraysh and attempt to cripple this huge behemoth of an enemy that they faced. But the two went back and forth, and these were small raids. I don't think of them as huge things where hundreds of people were killed. or anything. It wasn't like that. It was really small things where they were really just trying to disrupt, trying to disrupt the, the economic chain or the economic flow of the, of the society of their enemy. So there, there weren't really horrendous things in which you know, women and children were killed and you know people just strong, strong, bloody and dead all over the desert. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't like that. There were small raids that just went to hit them, disrupt them, you know, take some of the stuff as booty, as, as uh, spoils of war, and head on back. That's how it was for the first year or so in Medina. 
But this is only a precursor. And eventually, these little raids would eventually lead up to a full-out battle. And that's where we're going to pick up, because that full-out battle will be the Battle of Badr. And we'll pick up on this in the next episode of Syria Sira. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika, nashad Allah ilaha la anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alright, alhamdulillah. Now, this is the beginning of the outro. This is what I was talking about at the beginning of the show. This is the outro. We just want to go over a few final final details, give you a little bit more information, how you can follow up and keep in contact with Sirius Sita and learn more about what we have going on here. All right. So Sirius Sita is part of the Elm Network of Podcasts. And Elm stands for Islamic Learning Materials. And that is the primary website where all these podcasts all work together. Islamic learningmaterials.com that's the home base for the own network of podcasts which consists currently of three podcasts of course the one you're listening to right now Sirius Sita but also the flagship podcast which is Becoming a Better Muslim formerly the own show and a new podcast that was just recently recently released and we're now on the fourth episode Romantic Muslim. So you can follow all of these podcasts to make it easy for you. Just go to IslamicLearningMaterials.com and right there on the first page, you'll see links to all three of these podcasts and you can subscribe to them and join them, listen to them, pick and choose what you like. My suggestion, go for all three. But, you know, if you don't want to do all that, that's fine. Pick and choose whichever one you like. But now the purpose of this outro is to try to create a form, some sort of uniformity amongst the Elm Network. All three podcasts, they follow a certain format. We start off with the, with the, with the I guess we would call the title. I call it the title, basically, when I introduce the show, when I say, <clears throat> as I said here, this is the Serious Cedar Podcast, episode 14, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. That's the title. So each one of the podcasts will have something similar to that at the beginning of it. And then we have a, a short little nasheed, uh, some sort of uh, musical intro. Uh, may, doesn't doesn't necessarily have to include musical instruments, but it may be a, a nasheed or something like that. And then we get into the introduction to that current episode in which I may go over some pertinent news or just introduce the show. It all depends on the format of that particular show. But each show... Each each our podcast, I want to follow this specific format. So we're going to have the title, the opening title, which I introduced the podcast in and of itself, and then we have a, a quick nasheed about you know ten to fifteen seconds, and then we get into the introduction of the podcast episode, and then another short nasheed clip, and then we get into the actual. Um, uh, episode itself, the actual show, the actual meat and potatoes of the show, as I like to call it. I guess you can call it the body of the show. And then the show ends, as what just happened. Then we go into the outro, which is what we're doing right now. And then finally, we close it off with a final uh, quick nasheed, and we close it off from there. Now, uh, Becoming a Better Muslim is a flagship podcast, as I just mentioned. So that has the most intricate details. There's a lot of little things added on into there. But it still pretty much follows the same format. Romantic Muslim and now Sirius Cedar also follows that same um, format. So I'm just trying to create a form of unif- um, some sort of uniformity between the three shows. And inshallah, this is the process and the format that Sirius Cedar will, will have going forward. All right Now, if you do want to... Know more about Sirius Cedar? Just go to cedar.us, 
S E E R A H dot U S. That's the main website for this podcast, Sirius Cedar. And you can go and see all the previous episodes and listen to all the previous episodes. There'll also be links to the Facebook page. And you can go ahead and, and like that page in case you can't always make it to the website and you want to be notified of new shows. And sometimes you do other things on there besides just let you know, you know, notify you of, um, of new shows coming up to do that. Just go to cedar.us slash Facebook. It'll take you right to the Facebook page or you can just go to facebook.com slash serious cedar and everything will be okay from there. If you want to contact us, you have a question or you have a comment about any of the episodes or the shows we've done, anything you want to ask, just go to cedar.us, click on the contact button, or just go to cedar.us slash contact. There'll be a little email form there. Go ahead and send it, send it in. Let us know what you think. Let us know what's on your mind, and we'll see what we can come up with from there, inshallah. Now, the next episode of Syria Cedar, episode number 15, we'll be discussing the Battle of Badr. And this is the first major battle of the Muslims versus the uh, non-Muslims, the pagan Quraysh. We're going to get into the details of that, of that and see how it happened, inshallah. And if you want to get a head start on this, I, I covered all a lot of this stuff already and um, and uh, Becoming a Better Muslim, the podcast Becoming a Better Muslim, which at one point was called The Elm Show until the beginning of this year. It used to be called The Elm Show, and you can go into some of the archives there and listen to the podcast about the Battle of Badr. I did a long series about one of the companions, uh, Wahshi Ibn Harb, and involved the Battle of Badr. We went into detail about that. You can go check it out for yourself if you want to. Um, I'm going to do is what I'm going to do here. Sirius Cedar was is that could be the same exact thing because this show has a longer format. Sirius Cedar has a longer format, so we'll probably spend a little bit more time on it. And go into a little bit more detail about the Battle of Bartha. But it's pretty much going to be a lot of the same stuff. Now I want you to you know, rest assured I'm not going to take the same exact episode from my other podcast and just repurpose it and stick it over here. I'm not going to do that. It's going to be all fresh material. But you know, it's history. You know, I can only say history but so many ways. <laughs> so it's going to be pretty much the same thing. But if you do want to go ahead and listen to that show, by all means, go ahead, right on ahead, get yourself a head start. Just go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 51 islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 5-1 and go ahead and listen to the Battle of Bother there just from a slightly different perspective. Not much though. All right. Last thing. Now, if you would like to support Sirius Cedar, as always, please go to your into your iTunes account or if you got us through Stitcher, go into your Stitcher account. Leave us a five-star rating and, and review or just leave us any sort of rating and, re- and review. Let us know how we're doing. You know, let us know what you like, what you don't like, what we could do better on. Let us know. You know, we can't get better unless we know what you think. So go ahead and do that. And alhamdulillah, that will help us a lot. And that works into Apple's algorithm. It helps to push, push the show towards the top. And one last thing every now and then. I get emails or questions from sisters and sometimes brothers asking about where they can find Islamic clothing. You can just go ahead and type in the word Islamic clothing at Google and something will come up. But if you want something that I trust and something I like and something that I believe would be much more beneficial to you overall, check out check out my Batua and don't worry about the name. Just go to cedar.us slash jilbab, cedar.us slash jilbab, J-I-L-B-A-B. They'll forward you to the Maya Batua website and they have clothing, Islamic clothing for men and women of all different shapes and sizes. And inshallah, you should be able to find something that you like there. And of course, if you buy something, inshallah, it will also benefit Sirius Cedar and the Elm Network as well. Well, alhamdulillah, 
Thank you for for supporting. Thank you for listening in. Thank you for sharing. Let every all your friends and family know about Sirius Sita if you liked it. And let us know if we can do anything better, inshallah. All right. Once again, thank you very much. May Allah reward you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Wa <laughs> Muhammad wa al-Barak